0: The Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello, I'm Pamela Morales de Hendricks, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History. Thanks so much to listening to stories from the Rio Grande. We're continuing season three with another great episode that highlights the museum's history and milestones. We had plans to celebrate 50 years in 2020, but as you know, that didn't really happen. The pandemic really put a sort of a stop pause button on some of our digital content, but we're back. So, during the month of April 2021, we're publishing interviews that were conducted in 2020. These interviews are with former staff. We did start Season 3, though, with the current museum CEO, Francisco Guajardo. So, if you have not taken a listen to that, I greatly encourage you to listen to that episode But in this episode, we're going to hear from former staff member Barbara Stokes. She was, I believe, the archivist uh, here at the museum probably about 10 years ago. She shared some fun stories and memories about working in the museum. So let's take a listen. Paul, thank you again for joining. And if you could, could you go ahead and let us know your name and where you are now? My name is Barbara Stokes, and I am currently the archivist
1: and family historian for the Scott Petty family in San
0: Antonio, Texas. Great. Thank you, Barbara, for that information. And if you don't mind, When did you start working at the Museum of South Texas History? I started in October of two thousand
1: and six, and I left in September of
0: two thousand twelve. So that's about six years that Mm -hmm. you worked at the museum. So what were you doing before you ended up at the museum? Were you always a museum person? No, my my story is. It
1: took many many winding paths. I spent the first half of my career in public relations and corporate communications. And once my children were gone, I was ready for a new adventure. And I went back to graduate school, but not in Texas. I went to South Carolina, the University of South Carolina. And I got a master's degree in public history, which is a combination of museums, archives, archives and Historic Preservation. And then I stayed in South Carolina for another couple of years working for the Chapin Foundation. And yes, it's the same name as Edinburgh's first name. It was kind of an interesting coincidence, but I stayed out there and was paid to write The Grand Strand, which is Myrtle Beach and North Myrtle Beach and and a little bit further south. And that was published. And I came back to Texas because this is my home and got a job in Austin for a little while uh, while I finished up the book. And then I started looking for... Another job, another full-time job. And that was when the museum was advertising and I saw it online and the rest was history. <laughs> and I ended up down there. And I, I will have to say, I'm born and bred Texan. In fact, I, I was born in Wichita Falls. But I knew nothing really about the valley. I didn't even know that much about its history. They, they When I went to school, Texas history in seventh grade, didn't talk much at all about what happened in the valley and how it contributed to the growth of Texas and and all of those things. So it really was a new adventure for me, even though I I knew museums, I knew archives, but the history itself was a bit of an adventure and and I loved it. Wow.
0: So Wichita, that's like on the other side of Texas, right? (laughs) It's at the very other tip of Texas, at the northern
1: tip. Yes, it's, well, it's west of the Dallas-Fort Worth area and just on the edge of the Panhandle. I call it the other dry and dusty and hot
0: end of Texas. When you got to the museum, I guess <clears throat> what were you thinking? I mean, obviously you applied because you were interested. But what really mm-hmm. drew you to like think, I'm going to try to apply for this job in South Texas? <laughs> I had looked at several openings around the state because
1: because I was single. I, I'm still single. And my, my kids were gone. I didn't have anything to prevent me from relocating. So I was open to really anything in any part of Texas, except I did not want to go back to Houston. <laughs> so it, it kind of happened that this was an opening that appealed to me because it was about an area that I knew very little about, and I was curious about the institution, but also about that this, that part of Texas. And I remember when I drove down, the person who interviewed me first, and I can't think of her last name, but her first name was Donna. And at that time, she was kind of a second to Shan, and I talked with her first on the phone and then I came down for an interview and I, I kept thinking as I'm driving down, especially after you, after I passed Valfurius and, and it's getting very desolate and you're thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> but, um, but then I got there and walked into the museum and it was like, does anybody know this place is here besides the people who live here and was totally impressed by the museum, by the management, by the exhibits, and then, of course, by the archives. I did, went all kinds of goosebump walking into it, all of the, the materials that they have, and I was pretty much sold on it if we could work out, it kind of work out some kind of a deal, and we did, and it all just fell in place, and I, I never regretted, never regretted that decision.
0: Wow. Well, that's awesome. Your job title at the museum was archivist, correct? Uh, well, it, I think
1: that's what I was hired to do in the beginning, but before too long, I was the senior curator over archives, collections, and exhibits. So I was kind of managed a team of Lisa Adam and Tom Ford, and they, of course, then had people that they were working with both. Between the three of us, we all managed the archives, collections, and exhibits. So that was my role, as well as being the the
0: archivist.
1: They had so many things going on.
0: I definitely agree with that sentiment. As a communications (laughs) officer, there is so much to do. And, you know, having to help other staff members, especially the the Mm -hmm. people in charge of departments, including the archivist, You know, there's all kinds of fun stuff and so much rich history, you know, having to wear the multiple hats sometimes (laughs) on the museum staff is something that we have to go through. But I think it's important to have that because one of the things that I've learned working there, I've been there for almost five years now, is you really need to know history and really be involved in the operations of the museum in order to like you said, the messaging and and making sure that you're providing accurate information to the community mm-hmm. because we are a trusted source.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I took great pride in that we were looked to as a source. And I was on the Historical Commission for doggo County uh, for a few years. And as being part of the museum, somebody from the museum really should be at least if not on the commission, be aware of what they're doing and what they're working on. And, and then ask to speak at different kinds of functions of, of outside community organizations. They know that the museum is a good source of not only past history, but more recent the more recent past and how it's affecting the community. Get more involved with exhibits was which was changing exhibits. The only place we could put in anything that was changing, I mean that had a short term life, was in the the jail before the jail was. I mean, they started working on that really kind of after I left. So we had that open area to put changing exhibits, and then also sometimes they would move into the lobby, like you like you still do now, and and into other open spaces. So our team were were really involved in thinking through what those changing exhibits could be, what the schedule should be, what should be involved, who do we need to go to to borrow anything. So I was really, in terms of exhibits, I was really more heavily involved with the changing exhibits.
0: Was there any particular changing exhibit the best experience to have worked on that changing exhibit?
1: I think the one that sticks with me is the Spanish language theaters that were all over the Valley and not even just Spanish language, but just all the theaters. We even had a panel about drive-in theaters, and it took a lot of research, which Lisa and I did a lot of that, but, uh, well, and Tom, too. Good grief. He's, He's an excellent historian. We had some wonderful movie posters that were donated to the museum, and we used those, and we told little stories about the different themes of movies over the course of, you know, five decades and just the history of the development of people coming together to even watch screens that would be set up just outside of a store and the community would come. I mean, that was in the very, very early days. But just telling that story of how that evolved in the Valley was Just so interesting and something I knew nothing about. And I think there were a lot of people in the community that got really interested because they remembered some of these places. And we had a lot of photographs to kind of put, put everything in context. We had so many different kinds of mediums. We even had on a loop scenes from different Mexican cinemas. And had it set up in a corner, so you could see some of these old movies and some artifacts, and and of course educational panels. And I don't want to say we brought in a couple of speakers during the, during the run of the of that exhibit. So I think that's probably the one I remember most.
0: Okay, so now is there anything, any project, that you worked on, you know, finishing a collection or processing a collection. Oh.
1: In general, the archives was a huge, never-ending project. I found everything that was in there fascinating. But probably the one thing that stands out for me in terms of a collection, when we were given the opportunity to purchase Plan de San Diego, it was the grandson of the man who had organized the Plan de San Diego in the early part of the 20th century, when he came in with materials, of course, I had never once again, this was in 2009, I'd already been there for two years, and I did not know anything about it. It was an international tie that the, that our museum, if we could get this mater- these materials, it would definitely be of value to future researchers from all over the country. That was the way I looked at it. So he came in and he told us a little bit about what he had and that he'd gone to only one or two other institutions and they didn't feel like they were the right home for what he had, which were all the papers of his grandfather. Someone referred him to us and us meeting the museum. It was a long process in terms of not only getting, because he lived in Mexico. So in order to get it across the border, First of all, get it appraised and then find the funds to buy it. And we were very fortunate to to have a couple of foundations that were able to help us with that. And then processing it and really delving into all the details that were there. From beginning to end, it probably took about nine months to get everything finalized. I hope it's still being looked at. I learned so much about not only appraising a collection, but ensuring it and how to get materials like that out of Mexico legally and making sure we crossed every T and dotted every I and then preserving it. Also kind of marketing it and let, letting other people know that we had it. And I think that was the first thing I did was once it was all finalized was to write a press release. We wanted to get the news out that we had this collection and why it was important and valuable so that's that kind of stands out to me because it was a whole new set skill set for me in terms of all the all the things that I learned
0: I know we you know we're always trying to find ways to make sure that people know the community know that we do have items related to the plan de san diego so
1: and that leads me to the one other thing that I enjoyed probably as much as anything was helping the patrons. And I think that's one thing I kind of miss on, on the job that I've been in since I left the museum. Just getting different challenges from researchers, from scholars that would come in, even just individuals that were looking up their family history. If we didn't have what they were looking for, I would try to find it and lead them in that direction. And that gave me a great deal of satisfaction when they were able to find what they needed. I didn't always succeed, but it was always worth the trouble.
0: Do you have any a memory that stands out for you? Maybe someone <laughs> in the in the reading room?
1: We would have people from really all over the country. If they couldn't visit us, then they would call. Especially scholars, that kind of stands out, and when I say scholars, like professors who were doing research on the on the area, or as part of a book. And there were several times when we got mentioned in the acknowledgments for assistance in them help putting together their research. There were two professors from New Mexico before we got the plan of San Diego materials. They had already done a couple of books, I want to say, on the Rangers, on the Texas Rangers. But when we got that collection, they got so excited. And both of them came down and stayed for about a week and went going through every single paper. It played a part in the next book that they did. It was much more detailed than just the Rangers. It was about that period of time in Texas around the Mexican Revolution and then all of the different kinds of effects of the revolution had on the border area and they stayed in touch for a long time i don't know where they are now or i'm sure they're retired we had we had several researchers from other parts of the country that were looking because like you said the museum was a source of information in the archives which were started so many years ago i mean from the very beginning, the archives were seen as, as an important facet of the museum. And that is what brings people down, not only to see the building and the exhibits themselves, but to learn more about the richness of the history and the people and the circumstances that shaped the valley. There is one other thing, and this is me. This is not someone who else was down there. I mentioned earlier than when I was in South Carolina, I did a graduate assistantship with the Chapin Foundation, and then they hired me full-time to move down to Myrtle Beach and do do all the research and oral histories, and I did some museum exhibits and whatnot. I did a couple of video docs on Mr. Chapin, who founded that foundation. So when I came down to the valley, one of the first things I learned about was the fact that Edinburgh had previously been called Chapin. And I thought that's a strange coincidence. Then, on my own, I did a little bit of research and found that Dennis Chapin was a second cousin of Simeon Chapin from South Carolina. Wow. And I've never been able to find any proof that they ever knew each other because Dennis was born and raised in Texas and Simeon was. He lived most of his life in Wisconsin, Chicago, and New York. He was a financier and a stockbroker and very, very wealthy. And he helped develop the South Carolina coast in the 20s and 30s. And so here we have a second cousin who has also done a lot of similar things. Not quite the same kind of guy, but done a lot of similar things along the Texas coast. That held fascination for me and really kind of cemented my affinity for the border because it tied into another facet of my life that who would have thought that there would have been any kind of connection at all.
0: So, I mean, it feels like you were meant to be at the Museum of South Texas History. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It was
1: a great growth experience and intellectually, but also emotionally. And I enjoyed my time there.
0: a little bit about if you could remember the staff who was on staff at that time.
1: So many of the people that are still there are are ones that were there when I was there. But the two guys who who do a lot of the upkeep and, and maintenance of the buildings, they were both there. It was Lisa. She was the, like an assistant registrar with Lisa and I think she she's still there uh, if I remember. Susie? Yeah, Susie Matthews. Okay. There you are. Mm-hmm. Susie was there. And, and of course, Sandra and Mindy would come in every summer and and help her out. And and, and Lynn, and I don't think Lynn had an assistant. It was just really Lynn and Sandra that did so much of the membership stuff for quite a while in the store and managing that. And Shan, Esteban Lomas, he he worked with me in the archives, but he also helped with any kind of technology needs. Evelyn and Melissa, I think it was her last name, Pena. She was education. No, no, no. She was she was programming because Judy was, Judy McClellan mm-hmm. was education. For a while, we didn't have a, communic- a strictly a communications person. Joel Garza, who now teaches, I think it I was going to say UTPA, but UTRGV. He was a communications person for a while. Oh, Jim. He passed away while I was there, but he had been the communications person for quite a while, for many years before me. Jerry was there. Jerry came in after I came in, and David, he came in after I came in.
0: I think, yeah, Melissa Tejadina is probably the person you're thinking of. Ah. Yeah, yeah, not Pena. Yeah, Melissa Pena. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Melissa Pena does work with us. I know she was a like a museum study student for a while at the museum. Now she works in the archives and she helps Lynn. Really? Yes. That's
1: sure. well. That's great. That's great because she definitely knows her stuff and she's very outgoing and working with the public and everything.
0: Cool. Yes. So okay, yeah, pretty much all those people. So those people <laughs> are there. The two maintenance. I think. Probably the ones you were thinking. Joe. Joe had done this. Yes, he actually retired. We were so sad. Oh Um, goodness. But you know, he 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 wanted to enjoy retirement. So yeah, Joe left, I think the beginning of 2019. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. Manuel is still there. He he's still, you know, doing his landscaping and yeah, all that fun stuff. A lot of people may or may not know, of course, that museum staff, when we host events such as Pioneer Ranch and Crafts Day, Dia de los Muertos, everybody right. on staff is definitely involved in, in yes. helping put that together. So is there like a particular event that you just really, really enjoyed?
1: I really liked all of them. And my role was I was just a worker bee quite happy to be. Usually what I did, especially at Pioneer Ranch and Day, was admissions or I would be a floater. I, I didn't really like to do the demonstrations <laughs> and I will fully admit that, but well, I was much happier helping whatever anybody else needed to do, making their life a little bit easier and stepping in so they can go get a lunch break or, or you know, that sort of thing. I would just go where wherever I was needed at any of these kinds of things.
0: The museum is celebrating 50 years, officially opened its doors in 1970. What are your sentiments about the museum? celebrating 50 years?
1: That's a great question. I think the museum has always had, from the very beginning, a wonderful opportunity to not only tell a story of how the valley came to be. And and when I say the valley, I mean really the whole Lower Rio Grande Valley. But it's got to be more than just exhibits. And that's why programming and education And the archive, all of these things need to work very closely together to put context on where this region came from, the people of all races, of all economic levels, how they all came together and caused the evolution of the last 50 years. And the museum needs to be more than just portraying the past, it it needs to be part of telling the story of where we're going. How that's done, I really don't know. <laughs> but if it's still going to be there in 50 years, then it needs to be alive. Alive with people, with ideas, finding a way to helping the communities, the politics, the churches, the, all the different facets that make up the community. It needs to be at the center of those things to help all of those people talk to each other.
0: Any other last thing, anything that I didn't mention or something you would like to mention yeah. that didn't ask? I
1: don't know how to say this, because I don't want to break down,
0: but um, to
1: honor the, the everyone at the museum who's come before, and especially the one you just lost, they were very much a part of the museum,
0: as well as the people who support it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Barbara, for speaking with me and, and sharing your memories and your time at the museum. Thanks again to Barbara for sharing some stories and memories fun memories about her time here at the museum of south texas history as a friendly reminder we do have the first episode with museum ceo francisco guajardo and then of course this one with barbara and the next two episodes will feature other former staff members so make sure that you continue to follow us through the anchor app or wherever you're listening to this podcast for those next episodes i'm Excited to continue this, Season 3, and I hope that you continue to listen. Thanks! This episode was produced by Most History Communications. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin MacLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more stories from the Rio Grande and send us your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.